All right, we'll turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Colossians. Colossians. We're just starting a new series, and so I will read uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the spirit. Well, so begins an amazing letter. This is a great letter. I've never preached on uh, Colossians before, and so I'm really looking forward to this, and um, I think it'll be a, a great study um, for our church. So my task today is to introduce it and to preach this passage. And uh, as I introduce this letter, I'd like you to think of Colossians according to two poles around which are gathered two great themes. And the first theme is the centrality and the all-sufficiency of Christ, the centrality and the all-sufficiency of Christ. And then the second theme, important, in Colossians is the behavior and the characteristics of a Christian. And uh, the first of those um, great themes is especially in chapters 1 and 2, which features the great hymn, sometimes it's called that because it's kind of a lyrical section, to Christ. And so this kind of summarizes that um, theme. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, it says, All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So there it is, the centrality, the all-sufficiency of Christ. He's everything. All things sum up in him. All God's work of salvation summarizes in uh, Christ, so there's nothing left out. It's complete. He's all you need. Uh, And then the second theme centers on Paul's exhortation of the Colossians to Christian virtue. And uh, that's especially in chapter 3. Let me read you just a little sample uh, of that. Chapter 3 and verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So keep those two poles in mind, the all-sufficiency of Christ, centrality of Christ on the one hand, and then the behavior of a Christian, Christian character. 
Christian virtue. And uh, all those things, think of those two poles drawing all things in this letter to them like a magnet, and uh, you're not far from Paul's point. You've, you've covered pretty much the whole of this uh, little letter, and there's nothing more important for you than those things, the sufficiency of Christ and the behavior to which we are called as uh, Christians. So that's uh, that's an introduction to uh, Colossians. And let me kind of take a running start at it before I get to our passage. Uh, let me take a running start at it by asking, what was life like in Colossae for Christians uh, at the time that this letter was written to them? And I just introduced just the, the circumstances, the occasion for which this whole letter was written. Well, uh, the first thing to know about Colossae is it was a small town. It was a small town. It was a lot smaller than the other cities that have become uh, titles for books of the New Testament, like Romans or Corinthians or even uh, Thessalonians. Colossae was uh, a city on a different scale, a town uh, on a different scale uh, from those. In fact, it was so small that Paul had never been there before to uh, this church. He says that in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I'm writing to you, those who have not personally seen my uh, faith. Face, sorry. Have not personally seen my face. They hadn't seen Paul face to face before, but he's writing to them uh, anyway. Um, and so the Colossians had heard the gospel, and the gospel had come to their small town, not from Paul. He skipped it, uh, probably on his way to uh, larger cities, but from one of Paul's fellow workers, whose name was Epaphras. Epaphras. And Epaphras, he's kind of the founder of the church in uh, Colossae. He's important, and uh, I tried to pronounce his name correctly. So I asked the internet how to pronounce his name correctly since he's important. And it wasn't the way I wanted to pronounce it, but it was unanimous. So I'm, I'm working on it. It's Epaphras. Epaphras, um, Epaphras was a uh, Colossian himself. Chapter 4, verse 12 says that he's one of your number. So he um, was from this uh, little town. And uh, he probably brought the gospel to Colossae during Paul's third missionary journey which was about seven to ten years before this letter was written. And uh, the big event on Paul's third missionary journey was he spent three years in Ephesus. Three years in uh, Ephesus. And let me read what happened when he did that Acts chapter um, 19 and verse uh, 9 and 10. And these were the years that he was uh, uh, teaching at a lecture hall called the School of uh, Tyrannus, rationaling daily. Um with disciples, this took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Ephesus was the capital of Asia. Asia is the um, western part of Turkey, um, and Colossae was part of uh, Asia. And uh, so uh, that's probably the time that Epaphras, a fellow worker of Paul, brought the gospel to his hometown, um, the place where he's from. And uh, he was burdened for the people that lived there and brought uh, the gospel there. Um, Colossae is about 120 miles east of Ephesus and inland uh, from Ephesus. And Colossae is part of a tri-cities. It's part of a tri-cities, three cities that were all in the same river valley. So if you went um, east from uh, Colossae 10 miles, you'd run into Laodicea. Laodicea, and then if you went another six miles to the um, north, north, did I say that right? Northwest, northwest, uh, you'd run into Hierapolis, uh, the third of those sister cities, and it makes a little bit of a uh, triangle. 
Of those three cities, Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae, Laodicea was the most important. Um, although Colossae was almost equally overshadowed by Hierapolis. Uh, Colossae was by far the smallest of those uh, three cities. And Epaphras was deeply burdened for all three cities in the valley. He preached the gospel to all three uh, cities, and there were churches established in all three cities during Paul's third missionary journey where his, his base of operations was from Ephesus. Okay, so that's how the gospel came to Colossae and to the other cities um, nearby. Fast forward seven to ten years in the church's life um, in uh, Colossae, and now Paul's in prison in Rome. And this is where uh, the story of Acts ends. Paul's in Rome awaiting a hearing and is in his own rented uh, quarters. He's not in a dungeon, but he's in his own rented quarters in Rome waiting for a trial, a trial which he was actually acquitted of the charges when they, when he finally got um, a hearing before um, the emperor. Um, the, when Paul was in prison waiting there, the churches in these three cities made a joint venture to send Epaphras to Rome to minister to Paul on their behalf. And so it says in Colossians chapter 4, verse 13, as Paul's writing this from prison, he says, For I bear witness that he, Epaphras, has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. So all three of those churches uh, sent Epaphras. And uh, Epaphras did a good job, and he helped Paul so much that in another letter, Paul calls Epaphras my fellow prisoner. He's here in prison with me. He's he's serving me, and uh, he's, he's my fellow uh, prisoner. Um, why did Paul send a letter with a messenger at this time while he was in prison to Colossae, to the church in the smallest city of this uh, uh, Tri-Cities? And he sent it with a messenger. He had to send. There was no post office that that day. He didn't just put your put your letter in the mail. You had to find somebody who was going there or send somebody uh, that was going to the place that you wanted to send it. And uh, that's what Paul did. He sent a letter to Colossae at this time. Two reasons. Two reasons. One is while Paul was in prison in Rome, he met a runaway slave named Onesimus. And he was sending Onesimus back to Philemon, his master, Paul's friend, who lived in Colossae. And he was asking Philemon to forgive and to restore um, Onesimus. So all that, all that uh, happened in this little town of uh, Colossae. That's where Philemon was from. That's where Onesimus was from uh, uh, as well. So Paul was already sending Tychicus, another fellow worker, with a letter of Ephesians to Ephesus. And he sent Onesimus with him. And said, well, after you're done with Eph- in Ephesus, go also to Colossae and bring Onesimus to Philemon. Maybe help them to sort out um, what needs to be sorted out uh, between them. And also take this letter, the letter of Colossians as uh, well. So, and so this was an opportunity for Paul to send a, a letter to the church in Colossae. And he had something to say to them. He had something to say to the church in Colossae. Um, because of what he had heard from Epaphras about his beloved church, his home church, Epaphras' home church um, in uh, Colossae. And that is that the church had gotten involved in some false teaching, the church in uh, Colossae. Um, and it seems to have spread this teaching uh, in Laodicea and Hierapolis um, as well, although it didn't seem to spread much further. It didn't really spread out of the valley. And uh, it was centered in Colossae, the little, the little town uh, was the center of this heresy and the place where it really needed to be uh, rooted out or refuted. 
because it was a, a, a false doctrine that threatened to remove the church from its foundation, which is Christ. And so this was a true church, but they were in the process of embracing something bad, in, in, in the process of embracing false teachers. And so that's why Paul wrote a letter to them. He wanted to deal with it personally, even though he had never met these people. He had just heard about them. Certainly they had heard about him um, as well. And so he writes this letter. It's a warm and loving letter. You'll see that here because we're looking at the introduction uh, this morning. But it's also a letter of confrontation. It's a letter of intervention. It's a corrective. It's a rebuke uh, to them uh, as well. And what was the false teaching that they embraced in Colossae? Well, it's not entirely clear. It's a little bit shadowy and hard to say because Paul doesn't explain it in this letter. And the letter is all that we have uh, about this. He doesn't explain what it is, but he hints at it. And so you find little catchphrases that give you kind of clues about what it might be like philosophy. They were into that. Um, special knowledge. They, they wanted to have uh, special knowledge. Worship of angels. They were involved in that or tempted to be involved in that. And then um, asceticism, extra rules that are harsh on uh, the body. Ex- extra rules, not in scripture, but uh, they're trying to embrace these to make them uh, to be uh, more uh, holy. And so um, it's, it's hard to say exactly what it, is, what it is. It probably mixed both Jewish elements with pagan Gentile elements. And so the commentators kind of argue back and forth in an interesting discussion about whether it was more Jewish or more um, Gentile. It kind of makes sense that it would be both. A lot of the Christians were Gentiles who were already attracted to the synagogue before they became Christians and knew a little something about um, Judaism or they were Jewish people who had grown up in that and then became um, Christians who were already living outside the land of Israel and so exposed to a lot of Gentile um, pagan ways of behaving and even ways of thinking um, as well. Uh, but whatever this heresy, this false doctrine is, we don't need to know all the details, otherwise we would. Uh, scripture gives us everything that we need to know. We don't need to know all the details, obviously. But when you depart from the gospel and you mix it with something else, and that's what they were doing, whatever this was, this philosophy, this uh, ascetic ideas, this angel worship, um, whatever it was, when you depart from the gospel and mix it with something else, what you end up with is legalism. There's only two options. There's only two options. There's the true gospel and there's legalism. And so I hear sometimes about different um, cult groups like uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or uh, Seventh-day Adventists, let's say, or, or the others uh, that are mentioned, even even Roman Catholicism, which has departed uh, from the gospel according to their official um, teaching. And uh, you hear about them, well, yes, they're they're kind of legalistic. Well, of course they are. That's the only thing they have. If they don't have the true gospel, then that's the, they've already painted themselves into a corner. That's the only thing left to them is um, to be legalistic. And so that was the case in uh, Colossae um, as well. So the, the false doctrine itself, it was a dangerous false doctrine. It's one that needed to be addressed and, and fairly urgently. It's a little bit shadowy and unclear. The antidote, the cure, is very clear in Colossians. Paul does explain that from start to finish and from uh, beginning to end. And, and that's more important for us to know because there's there all kinds of false teachings that come and go, but uh, the antidote for them is much the same, much the same. And it's what I've already told you. It's those two pulls um, for the two main themes of this uh, letter. First, well, where Paul asserts the all-sufficiency of Christ. You don't need anything else. 
You have everything you need in Christ. You don't need to be looking for uh, something else. And then the second part where he exhorts them to behavior and character of a Christian. When they took their eyes off Christ, they also got off track there um, as, as well. And there's an unbreakable link between those two themes. If you take your eye off of one, the sufficiency of Christ, then you'll also take away your eye off the other, how a Christian is to behave. If you change one, the all-sufficiency of Christ, it actually changes the other so that uh, you've warped and perverted the way that a Christian is supposed to behave in subtle but important ways as well. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by that, that those two go together? Well, think about when you were first saved. If you can, if you're if you're not like me, I don't know exactly when I was saved because I think I was saved at a pretty young age. But uh, if you can, think of the day that you were saved. And for a lot of you, that you you know the date of that. That's an important date uh, for you to remember. But uh, when you were first saved, the Holy Spirit impressed on your heart God's unimaginable love for the unworthy, and that was you. And I do remember that. I don't know exactly the date or a time. Uh, but that's what happened when you were saved. He impressed upon you God's unimaginable love for the unworthy. It was a surprise to you that God could love that way and that he would love a sinner, a, a total sinner uh, like you, a rebel from the heart uh, towards God as your sin is exposed. And so that came to you. It, the Holy Spirit impressed that on you as good news, as good news is a message of good news, a liberating uh, message. And how did the Holy Spirit impress that on you? Well, through the word of God, the word that told you about the cross of Christ and the resurrection, that's where that's where it all comes uh, clear uh, to you. You see your sin, there he is hanging, dying, this ugly death uh, in your place. Only the worst of sinners like you would need that kind of uh, a savior and his resurrection and triumph and victory. It means you're forgiven of all your sins as the penalty has been paid and there's nothing left uh, to pay. And so the Holy Spirit impressed you when you first heard the gospel, the day that you accepted uh, the gospel, that Christ is all. He's all you need to be saved, to be forgiven. It's all in him. All the forgiveness is in him. It's not in any of your performance, not in anything that you've done in the past or are doing now or will do in the future. But it's Christ. Your salvation is in another. It's in uh, Christ himself. He impressed you that uh, Christ is all, that his grace is all. Grace has nothing to do with earning. And he uh, imp- impressed you that faith is all. In other words, your faith to trust in Christ. And sometimes people uh, speak of faith as some kind of uh, achievement. You know, God's going to save the people that achieve this faith. Uh, as if it's uh, some big thing or something that even a, a hopeless sinner would be capable of doing that would sort of merit uh, salvation. It's actually almost the opposite idea of what faith is and why we're saved uh, by faith. Faith in Christ means abandoning your own worthiness, anything about your own worthiness, any claim to worthiness or righteousness, any semblance of it, saying even the best thing you do is filthy rags in his uh, sight and trusting in another Trusting in another. That's what faith is. It's not some great achievement. It's, it's the opposite of that. It's renouncing any sort of, uh, great, uh, achievement. It's trusting in the love of God for, uh, the unworthy. So when you were saved, on the day you were saved, you learned and came to believe that Christ is all in how you were saved. He's all sufficient. He's everything. He's central. 
um, and he's complete. There's nothing else uh, that you need except for what is in Christ. Now, what about how you grow? Because uh, hopefully you've grown from the first day that you were saved until now. Christians grow. That's uh, if you if you don't grow, you might even have to uh, suspect that maybe I'm, I'm not a Christian. Maybe I really didn't trust in Christ. And I need to do that. I need to abandon hope in myself, and I need to trust in uh, Christ. What about how you grow? How do you grow as a believer? Well, no, let me tell you a secret, and it's the secret of this letter. So it's not really a secret, uh, and that is. How you get saved is also how you grow. How you get saved is also how you grow. The gospel is not just a recipe for how to get saved. It is also, in addition to that, so to speak, it is the deepest revelation of God's character. The gospel, the way that you're saved, the grace alone, um, Christ alone is your salvation, dying on the cross with arms stretched out in love. Uh, to all who will believe, is the deepest revelation of God's character. And so before Christ went to the cross in that unimaginable act of love, he told his disciples in, in relation to what he was about to do, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm about to do a great act of love. That's what the Father's like. That's how he wants to represent himself, is according to that great act, uh, act of love. Uh, giving himself for the most unworthy, people who have nothing to recommend themselves uh, to God and giving themselves um, in that way voluntarily as an expression of his deepest character. And the task of the Christian life is to become like God in his character, not, not in his transcendence, not to be uh, God. We don't become gods, but his char- that character, we are to reflect that uh, character. And so the task of the Christian life is to set aside sin and self and to grow away from it and become more like the character of God as set forth in uh, the gospel. And so the behaviors of the Christian life match what we know of God through the gospel. The behaviors of the Christian life that we're to grow into as we grow away from sin, they match the character of God that you knew on the first day when you accepted the gospel. And I've already read some of the uh, characteristics uh, that Christians are to grow in um, as they know God is also this way through Christ, as he's revealed himself uh, through the gospel. And uh, I read you these, uh, these, these are the virtues of the Christian life, a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, uh, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And then beyond all these things, well, what's the highest thing beyond all these things? Put on love, love, the same kind of love that Christ showed when he died on the cross, which is the perfect bond of uh, of unity. Uh, these uh, these virtues, you'll notice they're not self-oriented virtues. They're not lonely virtues. They're not virtues you can really practice uh, alone. They're about being around other people that are irritable. And uh, when you have a complaint against some of them, because and maybe a just complaint against them, forgiving them uh, uh, for that. Th- those are the virtues of the Christian life, not something else. And uh, they are people-oriented uh, virtues, and they're expressed, especially in the church. And then the church pushes to advance and include other people in it uh, uh, as well. And so the way to grow 
is to continue to know God better by faith as he's revealed in his gospel in his gospel. In fact, only the gospel can set you free from you. Your whole life was about you before you're saved. And even after you're saved, it's still a lot about you. And it's only the gospel that can break through that and set you free from that so that your life is about others and about giving, even to the most unworthy like God does when he wants to set forth uh, his character. So uh, Paul says in Galatians, in some ways Galatians is a similar letter uh, to this one. It's it's a rebuke for the same uh, kind of thing. And he says, are you so foolish? Having begun by faith, are you going to be perfected by something else? No, you're going to be perfected by the same way that you came, uh, by faith in uh, God as he is revealed through Christ. And so the reason for you to dwell on grace, the grace by which you were saved, the reason for you to never get over that, not advance to something else, but to live near to God's grace, to dwell on it, to ruminate on it, to learn the gospel better, to meditate on it, to be constantly reminded of the gospel the grace of the gospel, that Christ is all uh, in the gospel and the character of God that's revealed in the gospel is not for yourself. It's for others. It's that you might be a conduit of the same kind of grace and that your life would be increasingly characterized not by uh, sin and self, but by that same character. Luke chapter 6, verse 36 says, Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. You dwell near to your father and his mercy, not just so you can enjoy and be a dead end to it, but so that you can be a conduit. Be merciful to others just as your father is merciful. Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, similarly says, freely you received. That's the gospel. Freely give. That's the Christian life uh, as well. It's a life for uh, uh, others. So, the temptation for us and for the Colossians and for the Galatians to, uh, as that, uh, as that matter, is to get saved by the gospel. Okay. That's great. That's good news. That's all about Christ, all about God's character and grace revealed to you in Christ. And now you need to grow when it's hard and you have setbacks. You fall into sin. You get discouraged. You say, well, the Christian life must be about something else besides the gospel. And so you start looking for a second tier to the Christian life. New vistas of religious experience that would be higher than these down-to-earth virtues like love, like forgiving your brother, like being patient to your brother. And so you look for something, maybe a gimmick, something that, you know, like a vision or like a worship of a special angel or something. Uh, just something that, that would be uh, different from these. And in that second tier, you notice Christ is not central. Christ is um, maybe uh, has something to do with it. He's a teacher in it, but he's not central uh, in it. And uh, the Pharisees were all-stars at this sort of thing. They were the leaders of God's chosen people at the very moment that God sent his son uh, to them. They were very good at making up new rules, new traditions, new things, a second tier uh, uh, of the Christian life that you'll notice they didn't make up more love. Or more grace. It was usually more purity, you know, more washing hands or something like this that they could uh, uh, accomplish that would be easier. And you might say, well, you know, they, they added a lot of things and maybe that was good. You know, they took on a lot of extra things beyond uh, what the word of God says. They made even a hedge around the barrier boundaries that God set up by his, uh, by his, his law. Well, the Lord Jesus said to them, he rebuked them and he says, by your traditions, 
you nullify the word of God. You embrace the one and then you, you start forgetting the other, the first tier. You, you, uh, the holiness becomes all about that uh, second tier that really doesn't have a lot to do with love or forgiveness or Christ or uh, those things. And, uh, you actually set aside what the word of God actually tells you to do. He says to them, go learn what this means. I desire compassion and not, uh, sacrifice. If they had known God, they would have known that. If they would have known God's character. He says you neglect, uh, the weightier provisions of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. Well, those are characteristics of God uh, himself. So to alter the virtues of the Christian life by grasping a second tier, grasping at a second tier, maybe a, a higher virtue, uh, something that'd be easier uh, or, or harder, whatever it is, than uh, these uh, uh, mundane uh, virtues is not just to accept different priorities. It's to accept a different God. Because the Christian life reflects the character of God. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 and uh, verse 1. I've commented on this uh, before, the way this is translated. But let me, let me show you. It says, finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as you how you ought to walk and please God, uh, just as you actually do walk, that you excel Still more. And that is not the uh, verse that I'm, I'm looking for. Um, but I'm looking for a, a verse that, uh, and it's in a, a number of Paul's uh, epistles that says you're to walk worthy. You're to walk worthy of your uh, calling. And um, that means not that you're, in fact, it can often be misunderstood as meaning that the gospel is about God's grace. Your calling is about God's grace to you. And the Christian life is about paying him back, learning to deserve it, being worthy in that way. Uh, the word can be translated worthy. That's one way of uh, matching, of, of um, one way of defining this word. But a better for that context is fitting. You're to walk in a way that's fitting to the calling with which you were called. It's not at all about deserving. That actually wouldn't fit. Um, you're to walk in a way that's matching to the calling that you're to have. And so the way that you're to walk is to match the gospel itself. And you're to, you're to take on the character that is set forth in, um, in the gospel itself. What's at the heart of the gospel message, the simple message that even a child can understand uh, about God's grace in Christ. What's at the heart of the gospel is at the heart of God. It's at the heart of the gospel is at the heart of God as he's revealed himself in, in uh, Christ. Colossians says, all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him, all of them. And so what's at the heart of the gospel is at the heart of God as he's revealed himself in Christ. And what's at the heart of God is also at the heart of the Christian as well, or the, the Christian is growing into it uh, as well. As it says in Colossians chapter 3, uh, 10, we're to put on the new self who is being renewed according to true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him. We're, we're being renewed in the image of Christ as he set forth in the gospel. Okay, wow. That, um, that's an introduction to our passage, and we don't have a ton of time for the passage. But uh, uh, verses 1 through 8 is a simple introduction in the letter. Paul gives a salutation in verse 1 and 2, and then he gives a thanksgiving in verse 3 to 8. It's much like um, his other letters. His tone, as in all of his other letters except for one, um, is warm, is warm. Uh, not as warm as, let's say, Philippians, 
because he had never met these people. And so um, it's about as warm as it can be with people that he has not met uh, before. But even in these introductory words of salutation and uh, thanksgiving, Paul sets forth here what is vital. He kind of sets the tone for the rest of uh, the letter. And even here in these kind words that Paul gives to the uh, Colossians at, at the beginning, you catch the tone of Paul setting what he's saying about the things that are most vital in his ministry, setting it against something false. In fact, uh, two times, even in this passage, Paul uses the word true. Use it once in uh, verse 5. You've previously heard in the word of truth. And in uh, verse uh, 7 uh, as well, uh, uses the word uh, or at the end of verse 6. You've understood the grace of God in truth. And he's setting it over against something false, the empty deception that he's going to talk about in chapter 2 and verse 8. Okay, well, the salutation, and that's in verses 1 and 2. Who's the, who the letter is from? Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Paul introduces himself as an apostle. And that's different from some of his other letters where he just introduces himself as a bondservant, as a slave. He did that in Philippians, uh, for example. Um, but here he introduces himself with the term of authority, apostle. And he addresses the church as his responsibility. Interesting, Paul had never been there. A co-worker of his had been there, but Paul takes responsibility and seeks to address um, a, a difficulty. That's why he's writing this letter, and he's writing it as an apostle. He's writing it as someone who has authority to address uh, this problem. And yet, not in pride, but he's doing it an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. It's not Paul's desire to be this authority God has put him there. Um, and now it is his desire because of that. Uh, but it's an apostle by the will of God. And Timothy, our brother. Timothy was really important to Paul's ministry. So much so that uh, Paul often makes him a sort of a co-author of his letters. And then from the letter itself, you can see it really comes from Paul. But Timothy stands with him in that, um, saying uh, the same thing. Uh, Timothy was important, uh, probably marked out already as Paul's successor, and yet not an apostle. There's only a limited number of apostles. They're the, the ones that first um, witnessed Christ and were uh, sent out and laid the foundation in the first generation of the church. So he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ and not Timothy, a junior apostle or future apostle, but he says just the right thing for uh, Timothy. Timothy's a brother. Timothy's going to become a pastor and an elder and a worker in the church after Paul's uh, death. So that's who the letter is from. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. And so Paul calls them holy saints and faithful. They had gotten mixed up in some false doctrine, as Christians often do, uh, get mixed up, but their faith was real. They're, they're, they were true believers. Their salvation was real. In fact, Paul's going to be thankful. He's going to express his thanksgiving for their past gospel growth, which was uh, real. And he's you know, he actually used that to remind them, don't, don't, don't move on to something new. You already have everything uh, that you need. But he does address them as uh, saints and uh, faithful brethren in Christ who are in uh, Colossae. He calls them brethren in Christ. And that simple fact alone should have protected them from the false teaching that separated them. Their fellowship was in Christ. Their fellowship was in Christ. That's what drew them together. That's all they needed for uh, the Christian life. Christ is everything. And uh, so the basis of their fellowship was all uh, that they needed um, as well. To the faithful brethren in Christ. And then he gives this uh, greeting. Grace to you and peace 
from God our Father. That was his typical greeting. It was kind of a play on words on the normal greeting, which is just greetings. And instead of saying greetings, Paul said a sound-alike word in Greek, grace. Grace to you and uh, peace. Grace was the central concept that clearly expresses uh, Paul's understanding of Christ's work of salvation. It's grace. And I have a number of passages that I don't have time to read where Paul uh, equates his gospel with the message of grace, with the message of grace. Christ is God's free giving. It's not earned. It's not deserved. In fact, it um, excludes any sort of uh, deserving or earning. God hides himself from anyone who wants to be worthy of God's gift in any way or receive it as they become worthy of it. He excludes uh, himself uh, from that because the good news is the gospel of grace because that's what's in God's heart is uh, grace. So grace to you speaks of what's important about his whole uh, ministry and peace from God our Father. And the sequence is important. It's the grace that results in peace. Paul never says uh, peace to you and grace from God our Father. He always says grace to you and uh, peace. And both the grace and peace center on knowing God as Father, knowing God as Father. The grace that you receive in the gospel results in you knowing God as Father and the peace is, that's, that's what it means to know God as Father, is to have uh, peace. Well, that's the salutation, a very normal one for uh, Paul's letters, says who the letters to and from and a nice uh, greeting, a Christian greeting here as well. It goes into his thanksgiving, and this also is very typical. Paul always expressed what he's thankful for about the people that he's um, writing to. So that's verses three to eight. I'll break it into two parts as I'm going through these verses. First, the nature of their growth, and that's what he was thankful for, their past growth. And then and that's verse three to four. And then the basis of that growth. He kind of wants to nail that down, even in the Thanksgiving, verses five through eight. So the nature of their growth, verse three and four. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all of the saints. He says, we're thankful for you since we heard about your faith and your love. We heard about your faith and your love. And he has to say we heard about it because he hadn't seen it. He hadn't seen it. He hadn't been there, but he had heard about it from uh, Epaphras, uh, that these Christians in Colossae, this little town, were growing in faith and love. Now, that is an oddly specific way of describing growth and of dissecting it into those two parts, faith in Christ Jesus and love that you have for um, uh, for the saints. Um, he could have said, you know, we heard about you and we're thankful for this, that you all have become a lot nicer people since you became Christians. And uh, I don't know how it happened, but whatever you're doing, it's working and just keep it up. Uh, no, he says, we heard about you and this is what we're thankful for is that your faith is growing along with your love. We heard about your faith and we heard about your love. And those grow together because love grows through faith, through knowing God, through faith. That's how we're saved, through faith alone. And then it's also how we grow, is, is much through that faith and knowing uh, God through that same uh, faith in Christ Jesus. And what that does is it brings about in us a love for all the saints. In fact, it's a love for the most unworthy. It's described here for all the saints indiscriminately. He doesn't say we're thankful for your faith and your love for most of the saints, the ones that are the easiest to love. You do, you all do a good job of loving them. No, he said, we heard about your love for all the saints. Everybody who's included in the church on day one is loved uh, by you. 
uh, because it, it's the same kind of love that you're believing in by faith that God has for you. And then you're showing it to others, your love for um, all. So that's uh, the nature of the growth. It's a, it's a special kind of growth, a growth in faith and love. And then verse 5 through 8 is the reason for the basis for that growth. Uh, we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love which you have for all the saints because, here's, here's the reason why those things are present, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. It's hope that's causing you or helping you to grow in faith and in love. So here we have a familiar Christian triad Paul likes a lot and others in the New Testament as well. Faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. But there's an especially prominent place for hope here because he says your faith is growing, your love is uh, growing, and your hope is behind the scenes. The hope laid up for you of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, is what's causing this uh, growth. It almost makes you think that the hope laid out for them in the gospel is what's in question by some of the false teaching. It's uh, made um, the, the message that they're trusting in a little less hopeful. And so Paul reminds them that the, the reason why they, faith and love are present is because of this hope that is uh, behind the scenes. Hope is a near cousin to faith. Both of them are opposed to sight. And I won't read, but Romans chapter 8, verse 24 and uh, 25 says that we don't hope for things that are seen, otherwise it's not hope. Uh, so faith believes in what it doesn't see and believes that it's yours. Hope does too, but hope has more the idea of enjoying and anticipating what you believe before it gets there, before you see it. And so hope nourishes and buttresses faith. Hope is essential to uh, faith. And hope is especially in, uh, comes up in places where faith is not only needs to be present, but to endure through trials and hope buttresses faith, the enjoyment, the anticipation, the joy uh, of what we believe in is ours and it hasn't come to us yet. We haven't seen it. Uh, the hope nourishes that. And so hope uh, plays a very important role here in Paul's uh, Thanksgiving. It's the cause of their growth. I'm trying to speed through because my, my time is uh, gone. But the Bible speaks of hope in two ways. And we heard about this at family camp. Subjectively, and objectively, I said, well, okay, what, what, remind me again what that is. Subjectively is, uh, hope that you feel it. You do it. You do, you do the hope. We're encouraged to discipline ourselves in hope. That would be the subjective side of, or subjective way of speaking about, uh, hope. There's also an objective way that scripture speaks about hope. And that is the Christian has a hope whether you feel it or not. It's there. It's there. And, uh, which is it here? Which is it here that's causing this growth? Which has come to you, uh, sorry, uh, verse 5. Because of the hope that you're feeling in your heart, well, hopefully they're, they're feeling it, but what does he say? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Laid up for you in heaven. It's actually outside of you, this hope. Uh, and actually, um, Christ is our uh, hope. So uh, he speaks of the hope in this way, the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard. I'm not telling you again because you've heard it before. You heard it the first time, Paul says. You previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. The gospel is good news, but not all of it is here yet. The gospel tells you of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul calls it that in uh, Colossians. So the gospel promises you eternal life with God and with each other. conquering death, even, uh, a body that will live forever. 
Christ himself is our hope. He's a living hope, and he actually fills your whole life with hope and uh, makes all of the hopes uh, brand uh, new. And uh, their false teaching had eclipsed the hope that they have objectively in uh, the gospel and made it uh, less hopeful. The false teaching eclipsed the hope that was announced to them beforehand in the gospel and in the same way eclipsed the character of God and in the same way eclipsed the character of the Christian life. And so in the in way the gospel presents all three, and that's what was causing their uh, uh, growth. Well, uh, the basis of their growth that Paul's thankful for is the hope that's set forth in the gospel. And so the gospel is the last word of verse 5. Let me read verse 6 through 8 which is all about the gospel. Everything said in verse six through eight is about uh, uh, the gospel as the basis for their growth. You previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just in all, as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it, from Epaphras, our fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And a, a number of times you've heard me say the word it there. And the it is always uh, the gospel. Uh, you heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. What came to you? The gospel came to you announcing this hope. Just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. And so Paul speaks of the gospel being the basis for their growth, being the basis for their faith and love. And he speaks of it in motion. It's not something that stops with you when it becomes yours. It's come to you and in all the world, it's still going, he's saying. And he's thankful uh, for that. And in the world, it is the gospel. The gospel is constantly bearing fruit and increasing in the world, even as it's also been doing in you. And he's thankful uh, for that. And so the gospel itself has a reproducing capability. It's able to bear fruit. The gospel itself has an increasing capability. It's able to cause growth. And Paul's thankful for that, that not just with you, but in all the world, the gospel is bearing fruit and causing uh, growth, even as been doing in you since the day you heard of it, that's the gospel again, and understood the grace of God in truth. And so he says on the first day, he mentions that day, the first day that you heard of the gospel, and on that day you understood the grace of God. You understood the character of God in truth. You understood it on that first day, and that's the thing that is causing your uh, growth. And so the, the hope in the gospel takes you all the way back to the character of God, and that's why uh, that's what you need, not only to be saved, but also to grow in faith and in love. And so again, these three, the gospel of Christ, the message by which you're saved, the character of God, and the character of Christian. They all go together. And a strand of three is not easily broken. You change one, you change all three. You set one aside, you set aside all three. You make one less central, the gospel of Christ. You make all of them less central, the character of God, and also the character of uh, a Christian. Verse 7, he's still talking about the gospel, the day that they heard it in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. Epaphras was there on day one when the gospel came uh, to uh, Colossae. And uh, this is why Paul feels responsible for the church is because um, 
Epaphras is a fellow worker with uh, him, ministering on Paul's behalf, he said. You learned it from Epaphras, and that word is actually the word disciple. The word disciple appears a lot in the four Gospels. It doesn't appear a lot in the epistles, but it's here. It's hidden here. You were discipled in it, in what? The Gospel. You were discipled in the Gospel from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. And so uh, uh, Epaphras was making disciples. He was making disciples through the Gospel through the gospel, which is to uh, cause people to be saved through the message of the gospel and then cause them to grow as well. You learned it, the gospel from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the spirit. Everything is secondhand. But he told them that they had a love that came from the Holy Spirit. And that's why Paul is um, thankful. It's not the only thing he told them, not the only thing he reported to them. There, He told them about some problems uh, also, but their love was real. Their faith was real. The hope stored up for them, uh, according to the message of the gospel, was real. And Paul's thankful for that. He's thankful for past growth. And uh, in being thankful for it, he's tracing out the way for them to grow uh, more. It's not in something different. It's the same. And it's a growth that's uh, thoroughly saturated and based on uh, the gospel. So here's Paul's salutation. His thanksgiving just says to the letters to and from and announces a kind of a warm thought, more than that, a prayer, a thanksgiving uh, for them. But in this, Paul puts his finger on what's important, what's true, even where uh, growth comes from. So let me ask you this question as we close, and I am almost done. Let me ask you this question. Are you growing? Are you growing? Um, what measure should you use to determine, to measure whether you are growing? Well, um, that you sin less. That's certainly a measure. That's certainly a measure. That's not a bad measure to apply, but actually it's incomplete. It's incomplete. Uh, that you sin less in order that you might love others more. And that's actually a, a, a better, that's a positive uh, measure. So let me ask it again. How are you doing in love for others? Love for others. People that God has put you with right here. Um, at Trinity Bible Church, that's the place where it's best um, expressed, or your family members. How are, how are you doing in love for others? How are you doing in love for the unworthy? Love for the most uh, unworthy. Let that be a measure of growth. And how do you grow? How, how do you grow? If you're saying, well, I, I wish I was growing more. I, I may be um, thankful for past growth, but uh, I think my growth is bogged down. How do you grow? How do you grow? How do you be discipled? How do you disciple someone else? How do you grow? Well, let me say two things for how you grow. The first is efforts, diligence, work, initiative, follow through. The Bible's very clear about that being how you grow. The Bible does not make an uncertain sound about that being how you grow. Ask Paul. Ask him if his life was hard. Ask him if his life involved effort uh, to grow. Ask any of the apostles the way their life was and the way that they uh, exhorted other believers as well to love one another fervently, stretched out, pressing forward like an athlete. Uh, and so uh, growth involves effort. Peter says to uh, those that he writes to in Second Peter, he says, uh, make every effort to add to your faith. Uh, virtue, to add uh, to your faith uh, uh, moral excellence, to add to your faith self-control, to add to your faith uh, brotherly love. He doesn't just say make effort. That would be enough. That would be clear. He says make 
every effort. Leave nothing out. And so growth involves uh, effort. But let me say a second thing as well. Growth involves a certain kind of effort. It involves effort knowing God in Christ through faith in the gospel. In him, Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, not just some of them. And in the same way that we're to make every effort, we're also to understand that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ, They're found in knowing God through Christ, are found in making effort to obey God as you uh, think of him and have faith for him in Christ. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ as he's set forth in the gospel, and it's complete. There's no second tier. There's no special work. There's no uh, gimmick. You only grow in the first tier, the thing that you learned the first day that you were saved. That's what you are uh, to grow in. I don't know if you've noticed, but our country's not headed in a good direction. The world is not headed in a good direction. There's difficult days coming, and you will be tested. You will be weighed. You'll be measured. You'll be asked uh, by the Lord to do things that are difficult. So we should get ready. We should help one another to get ready. We have a good shepherd who comes, and even when we fall, will come and help us uh, to make us uh, ready. None of the difficulties that we're encountering or that our country is encountering are a surprise to our Father. He's calling us closer. He's calling us to live closer to fellowship with him as it's mediated through the gospel, through the hope that we have through Christ himself. And the key to knowing him is what you learned on the first day that you were saved about God in Christ to you as he offers himself in Christ to you. There's nothing deeper than that. I mean, there, there's, a, there's enough there to last you all eternity, but there's nothing uh, by quality deeper than that, which you learned on the first day, because when you come to that, you've come to a rock. And what you build that's not on that rock will evaporate. It will be uh, burned up, uh, though it's full of effort, but it's not built on that rock. And what you build on that rock will stand for all eternity, no matter how small. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the rock of Christ. We thank you that the rock that uh, the world rejected because he had a message so opposite to everything the world says. Uh, the world tells us how to clean ourselves up to you using everything available. And uh, the message of Christ is a message for hopeless sinners who can't do that and have to be saved another way, have to be saved by grace. It's a humbling uh, message. And so the, he's the stone which the builders rejected. They were building something else. They didn't have any use for that. And yet he's become the foundation stone for us. We thank you that those who put their trust in Christ will never be disappointed. Teach us to trust in him, to live for him, and to know you through him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.